Fort Charlotte is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved. Welcome to Sports Charlotte, the podcast about sports in Charlotte. My name is Herb White. And if it's May in Charlotte, that means one thing, racing. And for today's podcast, we have a uh, very uh, special guest who is intimately knowledgeable about Charlotte Motor Speedway and getting around that course at significant rates of speed. And I'm talking about Bill Lester. Uh, Bill, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, you are a pioneering uh, racer in a lot of instances in uh, NASCAR trucks, the uh, top level series, the uh, and the Xfinity series, as well as in sports cars. You know that maybe a lot of people around here may not necessarily understand or know about. But you've taken a decidedly uh, different route to get to those levels of racing. Uh, you were a, a late bloomer, a late comer. Uh, talk a little bit about that route that you took to get to NASCAR's top series. Well, it was truly non-conventional. <laughs> Most uh, NASCAR drivers, they tend to say they all grew up on dirt, and they all grew up at a very young age on it. And uh, that wasn't the case. I was fortunate enough to be exposed to racing when my father took me to my first race, just shy of eight years old. But he took me to a sports car race, a Can-Am race, as a matter of fact, in Monterey, uh, Laguna Seca. And, uh, you know, I was watching these cars blow by me at 160, 170 miles an hour, and that was mesmerizing to me. And I was thinking, wow, how cool would it be to be a race car driver? But, you know, what I was exposed to is road racing. You know, growing up in the, uh, in the, uh, north, uh, west, um, in the Bay Area in California, you know, NASCAR was born to, you know, that area of the country for the most part at that time. You know, this was the late 60s, so I'm dating myself, but I go back a ways and, <laughs> You know, NASCAR was a, a thing in the southeast, but it definitely really wasn't much on, you know, the west coast. So um, road racing and open wheel racing was the thing. And so my father took me to uh, my first road race, which was a Can-Am race. And, I mean, I was just mesmerized. It was, you know, intoxicating. It was exciting. It was thrilling. And he did it because he knew that I had an obsession with cars and a love affair with racing, you know, from watching it. And so, uh, yeah, you know, he set me on a path that <laughs> took me a long time to uh, to follow and to, to live it out. But um, I knew I wanted to be a race car driver, didn't know how to become a race car driver, especially at such a young age. And my parents don't come from racing, so I didn't have that, you know, um, leg up that a lot of these guys that are racing now and, you know, uh, when I was racing had, which is, you know, it was something that was in the family, right? They they knew the sport. They knew how to get into the sport. They, they knew how to climb the ranks. And here I am, you know, my father was a very accomplished basketball player. So, you know, as a kid, I was exposed to stick and ball sports. And that's kind of what I did early on. But I wanted to be a race car driver, but I uh, just didn't know how to make it happen. 
the good thing is that uh, my father exposed me to technology. And so, you know, my folks said, well, if you want to be a race car driver, you better get a job that will allow you to go out and race. And so that's what led me into engineering. And so I went to Cal Berkeley, which is right around the corner from where I was living um, in Oakland. And I got an electrical engineering and computer science degree. And I went to work in the high-tech sector in Silicon Valley. Started working for Hewlett Packard and, you know, just as a software development engineer and then quickly um, escalated to a research and development project manager. But that's not what I wanted to do. You know, that was not what I felt my calling was. I wasn't fulfilled. And it wasn't my passion. My passion, you know, was, was, was racing. And how did I know that? Because when I got my first car, you know, in my teens, it was the Fast and the Furious before it was a movie. You know, I was doing all sorts of things I don't condone, don't believe. <laughs> but, you know, I had to, I just had to find that need for speed that, you know, I, I had basically ingrained in me. But uh, somebody said, listen, you know, you're very skilled out here on these streets, but you can kill yourself or somebody else. And before you do that, um, why don't you take it to a racetrack? And I'm like, uh, okay, that's great. Uh, how you you know, go racing, and it's like, well, you obviously have to buy a race car, and you have to go and compete, and so that's what the engineering, you know, uh, program was all about, and what I did effectively with my first paycheck was bought a race car and started amateur road racing and Sports Car Club of America, uh, SCCA, road racing, and my first year, I was Northern California Rookie of the Year, the next year, I was uh, regional champion for, you know, my class, and um, I was like, okay, great, I should be able to turn professional, right? No. As it turns out, there's a whole lot more to it from um, the standpoint of turning amateur to professional. The biggest thing is money. I did not have any idea just how much it would cost, uh, you know, to go racing professionally. I mean, you know, at the amateur level, it was like, a, you know, four-figure, low five-figure expense. You know, when you talk about professional racing, of course, you start getting into six figures, seven figures, eight figures, and you know, I didn't have that kind of wherewithal. I mean, you know, I was making pretty good money as an engineer or as a project manager, but I sure couldn't afford to sponsor myself. So, you know, that's why I had a 15-year career in the tech sector as I tried to gain sponsorship to turn my amateur ambitions into professional uh, racing. And I finally got to the point, um, but I got, well, so like this, I got married in the interim. And my wife, she realized that I wasn't uh, getting any younger or any easier to live with not racing as a professional. And she said, look, for you to try to accomplish your goals, you're going to have to turn all your time and attention to making your dream a reality. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, you know, we've done well. Um, why don't you take a leave of absence from your job and follow all these leads and opportunities that you've been chasing and, and devote all your time and attention to it because you're not going to be able to succeed by only having a toe in the water, you're going to have to jump, jump all the way in. And by goodness, she was right, you know. I mean, so I took this leave of absence, and I started gaining traction with a lot of the relationships that I had made over the years, um, going to races, talking to people about racing, talking to sponsors, et cetera, and so on. And so I left Hewlett Packard and went for about three years just beating the pavement, trying to make this obsession a reality. And lo and behold, I got the opportunity with Dodge um, to race in the truck series. And so while I didn't get the first crack at it, Willie T. Riggs did, um, I became, you know, a factory driver for Dodge in 2002 in the truck series. So that's when I, you know, was finally able to consider myself a full-time professional race car driver at the tender age of 40 years old. Yeah, well, back in those days, that's when guys were hanging up the helmet. So you are just picking it up. 
Yep. Exactly. I mean, it was completely non-conventional. You're absolutely right. You know, it's like, wait, how can you pop out of nowhere effectively and start racing a NASCAR at 40 with you no know, no dirt track experience, no oval track experience, because I had never raced on an oval before, and then show up at a factory ride. But, you know, when Bobby Hamilton Racing tested me um, back for the 2001 ride, he selected me as his choice to race for him in the number eight Dodge. However, I realized that politics can rear its ugly head, and when Dodge indicated that, well, you know what, this is our program, we're sponsoring it, we want the biggest name that we can put behind the wheel at that time, and that was Willie T. Ribs, because he ran in the Indy 500, he was a known quantity, nobody knew who Bill Lester was, and then Bobby called me after a couple of weeks and said, hey, Bill, you know, I told you this was your program, but... Dodge told me that, uh, no, they wanted Willie to get the first crack. And so that's why Willie ran the Dodge truck in 2001. Um, then they did the Gong Show again at the end of 2001, and that's when I solidified it for sure for the 2002 and 2003 seasons, which by at the end of that period, Dodge pulled the plug because the whole reason they created the program was to give an opportunity for other corporations that preach diversity and inclusion an opportunity to get on board with Dodge. Well, Dodge was flabbergasted because while all these other companies talked about diversity and inclusion, they didn't walk it. They talked it, but they didn't walk it because we were unsuccessful in getting really any other partners to come on board with Dodge. And Dodge said, well, you know what? We ran the experiment. We paid for it for three years. Nobody else stepped up, and that was that. Yeah. So now when you look at this uh, from the standpoint of the historic perspective, uh, racing has always had its issues in terms of diversity in the driver ranks uh, outside of, you know, and, and it's been well documented. Uh, when you look at yourself, Willie T. Ribs, Bubba Wallace, you know, uh, in the last 20, 30 years, maybe 40, you know, those are the three names that, that are there. Uh, and, of course, Lewis Hamilton in, in Formula One. In terms of black drivers, and I know you've you've heard this and you've been asked plenty of times, you know, uh, does racing have a race problem or is this just a matter of it's all about money and relationships and not necessarily skin color? Well, I mean, it's, it's all of that. It, 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 racing does have a race problem. And a lot of the reasons that we're not uh, represented well in the sport is because of the fact that these decision makers in corporate America don't look, um, <laughs> they're white, they're, they're white male, and it's a, it's a good old boy sport for the most part. The decisions in corporate America, you know, they kind of hold on to their own and, you know, support their own, and unfortunately that leaves a lot of drivers of color on the outside looking in. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to companies that did not realize I was a black driver. We had a great negotiation. I mean, it was almost like a slam dunk. Then they find out that I'm black, and all of a sudden, the phone calls are not returned. And I was like, my goodness, the politics, you can cut it with a knife. It's so thick. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, unfortunate because one of the reasons there aren't more drivers of color is one, exposure, and two, opportunity. But what I mean is that by exposure, you have to be – you know, it has to be brought to your attention. It has to be something that you're exposed to at a young age. Because to be a race car driver these days, you better start out real young. So you have to be exposed to it. And motorsports is, you know, um, just not what's considered, quote, unquote, cool, at least in the African-American 
community. You know, it's all about sticking ball sports. It's about being that football player. It's about being that basketball player. You know, that sort of thing. Motorsports is something that they do, right? So the exposure is not there because it's not in the family. You know, it's it's not something that, you know, we have been traditionally um, invited to or felt comfortable being a part of. So why do we subject ourselves to that environment? We don't. We go to environments where we live, you know, we are accepted. We do that we have a level playing field. So that's what we do. But the second thing is opportunity. Let's say that somebody does get that opportunity um, or that, that exposure at a very young age. Then they have to have the opportunity to participate. They need to have that level playing field. They need to have the access to capital that their counterparts have. And that access to capital comes from corporate America, comes from dollars. You know, initially it doesn't come from corporate America. It comes from a family infrastructure that can afford to do it. I don't know that many black families that can afford to, for example, at a very young age, let's say single digit, put a kid in a national go-kart competition at six figures. You know, to be a national karting champion, it's a six-figure proposition. I don't know how many black fam- I don't know that many black families that can afford to do that for their kid who's eight or nine years old. So again, the opportunity is not there. So uh, you know, as a result of these two shortcomings, there aren't that many drivers of color that are out there. Yeah. Now I talked recently to uh, Rod Reed uh, in Indianapolis, and he's the uh, uh, he's the point person for the for the uh, Formula Two Thousand startup uh, Force Indy, and he mentions a lot of the same things that, that you're talking about right now, as far as like the exposure and it, basically the welcoming, uh, because he mentioned you know. When he had a program over at Indianapolis Motor Speedway to specifically get black kids involved in open wheel racing, you know, one of the things that he said, you know, folks told him was you can live close to the speedway and you see it every day, but you don't necessarily feel welcome there because, well, it's almost like it's an unspoken rule. You don't belong here. Uh, so is is that something that even in 2021, uh, granted, ride is over on the open wheel side, but is that something that you notice even on the stock car or the sports car side? Uh, definitely on the stock car side. The sports car side is much more welcoming because it's a more international environment. You know, when you talk about sports car racing, it's almost a, you know, uh, international melting pot. You have engineers and, and mechanics and all that kind of stuff from Europe coming over here to uh, become involved in the top sports car racing teams and what have you. So that's accepted. But NASCAR is like, you know, it's a, it's been termed the NASCAR bastion of white supremacy. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but it has been because it's been so lily white that any, you know, change in, in, in the guard is something that is met with resistance. Um, from the fan base and, and even from a lot of the infrastructure. But, you know, let it suffice to say that when you talk to Rod Reed, who runs NFB, you know, um, and I'm glad that Roger Pence has gotten involved supporting that program, you talk about the fact that he says it's difficult, and that's in open wheel racing, and that's in Indianapolis, right? That is not the deep south of NASCAR, you know, the Bible Belt, and, and all the stuff that goes along with, you know, a lot of the images that we do not feel comfortable with, like the Confederate flag. So you take the problems that Rod Reed is talking about and you put them on a scale of times 10 and then you're dealing with what the environment is in NASCAR. So when you talk about, yeah, is that environment 
um, unwelcoming? Absolutely. You know, absolutely unwelcoming, especially with the flag, you know, um, flying proudly in the breeze. Thank goodness Bubba was able to talk to NASCAR, use his platform, and invoke some change. But there's a long way to go. But when I was there in the mid-2000s, there was no way NASCAR was going to be receptive to the idea of pulling the Confederate flag. It's only as a result of the fact that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has occurred and the unfortunate death of, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and those things that country has actually woken, you know, awakened, I should say, and become somewhat receptive to um, inequities that we experience as African Americans. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so as a, as a result of that, you know, there, there is a little bit of uh, a crack in the door, but it's not wide open. It's extremely difficult. I was fortunate that I got to stand on the shoulders of Willie T, and Willie T got to stand on the shoulders of Wendell Scott. But, I mean, it's ridiculous when you rewind the clock and you think about since Wendell Scott ran in NASCAR in the 1960s, it's now 20, in the 2020s. So in 70 years, there's been four African-Americans to race at the top level of NASCAR. I mean, that is the Cup Series. It's Wendell, Willie, myself, and now Bubba. It's an absolute travesty that that's the case. And, you know, when you talk about corporate America, you know, getting opportunities and all that kind of stuff, I can't tell you how many times I've beaten down the door trying to get my foot in the door. And they're like, you know what? Uh, well, you know, uh, well, we're not going to do this. And the next thing you know, that same company um, a month later announces a sponsorship program with, you know, the white driver. So, you know, in any event, I, I don't want to, you know, start getting medieval about this, but there's a lot of um, disappointment and bitterness that I've experienced as a result of trying to just be a driver that should get an opportunity, but, you know, the fact that, like, I'm African-American seems to get in the way. Yeah, and even to that, and by your own story, you know, you came to the sport late in terms of driving. Uh, did age have anything to do with that? No, you know, I don't believe it had a significant, um, you know, impact. Sure, it's going to have some impact because when corporate America is trying to reach out to their target market, they're usually looking for, you know, the 18 to 30-something demographic, right? So I'm in my 40s, so I'm, I'm a little bit outside their target audience that they're really, most companies are really trying to, to, to uh, attract. But, you know, by that same token, um, I never was – I, you know, everybody, I just feel like this. I pretty much fooled everybody because people did not believe I was the age that I was because I don't look it and I don't act it. <laughs> so, you know, from the standpoint of being um, able to market products and stuff, I would be fine, you know, when I came in. As a matter of fact, I was really honored by the fact that General Mills had me on Honey Nut Cereal cereal boxes for two years in 2003 and 2004. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I was scaring kids at the breakfast table. <laughs> with my signature boxes, and I'm in my 40s, so, you know, yeah, I, I was a very youthful, you know, 40-year-old, and uh, I don't think that my age particularly held me back. I would say it's more my skin tone than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, are you uh, in touch with Bubba in terms of, uh, you know, from one brother to another to talk about how things are as opposed to they were uh, when you were racing, or do you have any contact with him at all? Yeah, um, Bubba's very supportive of me, and I'm very supportive of Bubba. When I, when I wrote my memoir, motivational memoir, Winning in Reverse, 
which is available out now. We released it in February. Mm-hmm. Um, Bubba was one of the people that provided a book for it. You know, he was very supportive of the memoir, and he thought it was great work. He understood, you know, um, that my story was one of perseverance and persistence. Um, you know, gratitude and networking and passion and all that sort of thing. And so he endorsed it. And um, I've been very supportive. Of him. I'm very proud that he has stepped into his skin. You know, when I first came across Bubba, when he was like in his teens, you know, <laughs> he was a very different guy than he is now. And, um, you know, he has clearly embraced his ethnicity, whereas before I just think he was believing he was like, you know, just non-different, um, and then he realized that he, he is different, and um, he's used his platform for trying to move the ball forward for social change, so I think that's great. We are in touch with each other. Uh, we don't talk on a regular basis because he is bombarded as far as his time is concerned, but we text each other on a fairly regular basis, and uh, I encourage him and tell him that you know, he's doing a great job. I am looking forward to when he really has everything at his disposal to be successful behind the wheel. What I mean by that is the bus with, you know, 2311 with George and Hamlin and, you know, the uh, support of Joe Gibbs Racing. I do not believe that that is a true Joe Gibbs Racing type car. I believe the parts and pieces are Joe Gibbs Racing, but it takes, and most people don't realize this, the technology to put those parts and pieces together to make them successful on the track. And then you need the crew and what I mean by that is the right chief and the right over-the-wall guys to put everything together on race day and make it right. I've seen too many opportunities, too many situations where there's a good run that goes bad because of, you know, a bad pit call, because of bad service, or whatever it is. Bubba is much better than what he's demonstrating on Sunday. And so I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, the right moves will be made so that, uh, you know, the results are there. Uh, commensurate with where they should be. He, he should definitely be running uh, top 15 all the time and, and top 10 on a fairly regular basis. Um, he actually went so far as to make the statement about expecting two wins this year. I thought that was ambitious. For a brand new team to come out of the box and expect to win their first year, I think it's ambitious. I would never make that statement, but he was feeling very comfortable. Um, that's still a possibility, but I think realistically for a first-year team, if he gets a few top tens, you know, and, and maybe a top five, that would be a successful year. So uh, while they're not there yet, I think his best finishes are in the 16th, top, uh, you know, uh, rundown. Uh, yes, I think he's got two or three 16th-place finishes. You know, I, I, I can believe that they can be knocked on the door top tens here real quick, and I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a top five a win. Wow, that that was huge. That would be a huge accomplishment. Yeah, you're gonna have to gonna have to use some good fortune and execute on it in order to pull that one off. Absolutely. Yeah, and so now it's interesting when you talk about uh, the bits and pieces of a car, and a car. Some would argue a car is a car, but it's not. You know, when you're talking about putting together a successful run in a race, it has to be the car, it has to be the driver, it has to be the crew, it has to be the strategy, and it has to be engineering, depending on the type of of of, uh, of racing series that you're in. Uh, talk a little bit about that, especially when you talk about maybe the you know, and, and you're the science guy in this conversation. The 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 talk about the conversation that you would have in, let's say, Formula One and IndyCar. 
versus what it would take to be successful in NASCAR or the truck series? Well, you know, it doesn't matter what your discipline is in racing. The same uh, elements have to come into play, and those are the elements that you mentioned. You know, I've always said that the driver gets a disproportionate amount of praise if things go well and um, blame if they don't. The driver is only one component of the equation. You know, I always consider the driver just to be the loose nut behind the wheel, you know, because if the car's not right when it gets to the track, I don't care how skilled you are, you're not going to win. You're just not, because most of these races are won one and lost back at the shop. What do I mean by that? I mean, all the technology that goes into building these cars, setting up these cars, and, and everything there, such that if the car's not right when it gets to the track, you know, you can only make minute adjustments to it to try to band-aid or mask the deficiency that you may have, right? I mean, if you look at, um, you know, some of these racing teams that are not doing well, it's because they don't have the right platform. It's not as if they don't have a talented driver. All of those drivers out there in, at the cup level, at the Formula One level, at the top level of motorsports, Indy cars, whatever, they're all very good, right? But if they don't have a car that they can perform with, they're not going to be successful. You can't carry these cars. What I mean by that is that even though the parts and the pieces are all the same, it's how you put them together. And what I mean by that is that the uh, simulation that you have to put the car through has to be right. And by, what I mean by simulation is that that's the car being run in a simulated environment to mimic the car before it actually gets to the racetrack. A lot of these cars run through their race before they even, you know, set foot at the venue. I mean, they, they go through shaker rigs, they go through pull-down rigs, they go through all sorts of different things where the parameters can be adjusted by the engineers so that the uh, performance of the vehicle is maximized. And people don't necessarily realize that when they see races um, on TV. They think all the cars are exactly the same, and the wins and loss are strictly as a result of how the driver performs. No way. I mean, there are periods of time, like you can um, easily in NASCAR, let's just let's focus on NASCAR for a minute. There are periods of times when you can see where Jeff Gordon could, couldn't miss. He was winning everything. And then there were years where Jeff Gordon could not find his way out of the paper bag. That's not because Jeff Gordon forgot how to drive. That's because the chemistry wasn't there. That's because whether the cars were set up right or not, the crew chief, you know, he wasn't vibing right. The crew chief wasn't giving him what he needed so that, you know, he could uh, maximize his performance. He wasn't giving him, you know, a, a car that was tight enough to drive, or he wasn't giving him a car that was loose enough for him to drive. Um, Let's look at Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy Johnson was winning everything for a while as, you know, seven-time champion. And then towards the end, you know, he and Chad Canals, the chemistry was gone. I don't know for whatever the reason. I wasn't an insider. But it was clear they weren't vibing. They were bickering. They were fighting. And while they both were working hard, the magic was lost. Same thing happens in, you know, Formula One racing. You take, um, even though Lewis Hamilton is phenomenal as a driver, you could take, I'm sure, Max Verstappen and put him in the Mercedes and probably Max would have the very similar results that Lewis is having. I mean, not to take anything away from Lewis. Lewis is a phenomenal driver, but Max, you know, is a, 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 the same thing. I mean, you can almost, like, um, use them interchangeably. But I believe the platform of Mercedes is much better. Well, let's put it like this. It's not much better, but is better than the Red Bull platform. And, you know... And certainly Haas. 
Sounds like everything is relative and it's relational between the driver and the crew chief, between the crew chief and the engineer and the pit crew and the spotter. <laughs> you know, so there's a whole lot of moving parts, literally, going on during the race. It's the ultimate team sport. You know, people don't believe that motorsports and racing is a team sport. But again, a driver can't carry these, can't carry a car. So it's not set up right, and that's the responsibility of the team. Then it's the, the team is going to struggle, and the driver is going to struggle. You know, it's just not going to be successful. So you're absolutely right. Everything has to come together, and that's why it is so satisfying when you win, and so rare that you do. Because as a driver, you only have a very small um, command of what you can control, and that's you turning the wheel. You know, you can't go and make your own changes. You can't go and make sure that everything was set up on the setup pad correctly. You know, you have a very small, um, you know, uh, I would say influence in terms of what ultimately happens. And so, again, you know, when um, I won at VIR in 2011 with Jordan Taylor and 
um, the Grand Am series, which is now the IMSA series, it was so satisfying because everything had to come together, and it did. And, you know, it's such a rare thing when it does. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, racing at Atlanta Motor Speedway uh, earlier this year. You're semi-retired or what exactly? (laughs) Yeah, you know what? I'm still trying to define what I am because uh, I never imagined that I was going to get back behind the wheel in a professional race when, you know, I walked away in 2012. My last professional race up until, you know, uh, two months ago was uh, in 2012. And I considered myself, you know, effectively retired. I never announced a retirement, but, you know, the sponsorship was just becoming harder and harder to attain. And I was like, you know, I'm done with this. I'm done chasing dollars, you know. I mean, the way it is now, the driver brings his checkbook first and his helmet second. And, and it didn't used to be that way. You know, traditionally, a driver got a ride because of his talent and the sponsorship was taken care of. In this day and age, the driver's got to bring the sponsorship typically with him because the team owners basically only provide the infrastructure. The operational expenses are usually provided by the driver. So that's crazy. I mean, there's only a few drivers that don't have to worry about any kind of sponsorship, you know, but the majority of drivers in whatever series it is on a professional level are responsible for bringing sponsorship. So that's crazy. So anyway, in answer to your question, I thought I was done racing professionally in 2012. But then, you know, again, this book that I wrote, this motivational memoir, um, came out a couple, well, three months ago in February. And I figured, you know what, it'd be a great way to give this book of mine some little, you know, some additional promotion if I actually return to the track and practice what I preach. You know, racing has always been my passion. And, um, you know, that's what allows you or allows me and allows most other people to be successful. If you are able to identify your passion and don't take no for an answer and you believe in yourself, you can accomplish things. And so one of the things that I mentioned as well is one of my I said, you know, I'm going to practically preach. I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I am going to get back behind the wheel of a NASCAR vehicle after not having done so since 2007. 2007 was the last time I ran in a NASCAR Craftsman truck race at the time. I'm going to come back after 14 years and run in a NASCAR Camping World truck series race in 2021, and I did exactly that. And it wasn't because, you know, I really had – the desire to come back and race. I was actually fairly comfortable sitting on the couch and watching, but I figured I'm going to get out of my comfort zone and see if I can do it. And because I've always believed in myself and I still, you know, to this day believe I can race whatever it is that I'm given. And so I was going to go back and prove it. And I did, you know, I mean, no, I didn't win the race far from it, but I didn't go out there and crash. Um, <laughs> you know, this is a win in itself. <laughs> yeah. And that's a win in itself in a 130 lap race with no practice. No qualifying. I get up off the couch after 14 years, put on a fire suit, strap on a helmet, get into a 750-horsepower NASCAR camping wheel truck. They drop the green flag, and I'm 180 miles an hour into turn one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's Well, it takes a lot more gumption than most of us will summon up. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And so the, the name of the book is Winning in Reverse, Pegasus Books. Uh, released in uh, February, and uh, this is your opportunity as we close out the conversation to give it a shameless plug for anybody who's listening so that they can go out and buy copies. See, copies, not copy. Copies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I want folks to know that this is not 
a racing story. This is a story with a racing backdrop. This is a story about how you can live your dream. And that's really what I wanted to get across. I identify eight keys that allowed me to be successful. And what I define successful is happiness. I define success as looking forward to each day, thinking about, you know, looking forward to the next day, thinking of looking forward to the, the day that's ahead, whatever the case is, not how much money you make or what your stature is or what your, you know, your job title is, whatever. That's not success. Success is being happy because you're doing what it is that you feel you are gifted to do. And so racing was my passion. That was my gift. And it took me a long time to get there. You know, most people would have given up trying to be a race car driver by the time they were 40 years old. I didn't. I knew this is what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to let it, uh, you know, this opportunity, this gift that I was given um, go by the wayside. I wasn't going to, you know, fumble it away. And so as a result of that, I thought that the things that I learned would be beneficial to anybody, no matter what their pursuit is, not necessarily racing, but no matter what it is, I believe the keys that I have identified can help you live your best life. So I wrote this motivational memoir, Winning in Reverse. Outstanding. And so we're going to leave it there. And Bill, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast and uh, much success with the book and semi-retirement, whatever that looks like. And, uh, and again, uh, copies of the book are out there on bookshelves across America. So go out there and get yourself at least one and maybe even two if you really need the inspiration. And uh, thanks again. And our guest today has been Bill Lester, engineer, racer, and now author. And uh, thanks for everything. And you can certainly download Sports Charlotte at Queen City Podcast Network. You can also access it on our website, charlottepost.com, and Apple News and Spotify. So we're all over the place. And for Bill, the gang at the office, and everybody who's connected with the Charlotte Post, my name is Herb White. Thanks for listening. Sports Charlotte is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.